Uh, some people enjoy shopping, some do not. I, I count myself as, as the latter. Um, and, but um, like Sherry knows, Sherry knows that, that my attention span at a place like Macy's or Kohl's is 10 minutes and, and the quickest way to rob her joy of shopping is to take me along. Um, and, and, and it's just not my happy place. And she knows if she wants to get a break from me, she does the really nice thing. She does this thing where she says, would you like to go shopping with me? And, and she knows she's about to get some, some Tyler free time. And Tyler's about to get free time too. Um, and so she'd take one of her daughters and Easton, that's great. But I, I don't want you to think I'm totally against it. I can spend hours at Menards and Best Buy and Costco and pretty good chance I'm gonna spend 80%, uh, or I'm gonna hit about 80% of the aisles finding the things I need. Um, or, or want or just looking at stuff. So that's, that's my thing. But, but to that point, I am often sent on my own shopping because we have different interests and with understanding that, that she's going to get multiple calls from me, right? I, I, you know, go get me some black mascara. There's black, there's black, black, there's blue, black, there's brown, black, there's true black, there's midnight black. You know, like, I don't know why she even sends me for this stuff. But every now and then I get to go. And a couple weeks ago, you sent me for plants, and, and you said, I don't even remember what it was. And I'm like, there's nothing like that. It's all Latin, right? I'm not trying to look it up on my phone. What is this? Luckily, Al bailed us out and got us some, some plants that made her happy. Um, but it was interesting. And, and even yesterday, I went and arbitrarily decided to upgrade her hummingbird feeders. The, the birds were happy. I'm not sure Sherry was excited about them, but, but that's how I roll. But some people like to get out and shop and get the exercise, and, and some people like the activity, and some people like the thrill of the hunt for the good deal. And I think things like uh, Jacob's Cave and, and eBay and the auctions really, really kind of thrive on that. And, and I imagine it's a lot of fun. And everyone wants to feel they got the best deal possible, right? Um, and perhaps one that they even had a hand in negotiating. And some people love the negotiation, some people dread it, some people love it and then just feel like, boy, did I, you know, it could still get taken. But I wanna ask you this, have you ever tried to make a deal or negotiate with God? I'd venture to say you have. And it may not be the cliche, God, if you just let me have this one thing, I, I will always do this. Or, or God, if you will save me from this, I will never blank, right? We do this, but it's not always that that direct. Sometimes it's more subtle, perhaps subconscious, as we, we weigh our faith and, and commitment to God against what we, He has done for us or, or what we, we perceive He has done for us. And there is a large, unfortunate, growing number of people in the world that, that don't see much use for God in their life because they choose to not see God at work in their life or, or they don't like what He is doing for them. We confidently scoff at that statement and think that's, that's not the way with us, right? We know God, we trust God, and, and if he's not giving us what we want, it's probably because he's got something better. And, and more often than not, that is absolutely true. But take a moment and consider the message series we just concluded, A Life of Focus. But it was based on the word, on the spirit, the church, and prayer. And, and, and I'm going to ask myself the same question. How is your focus? How often are you reading God's word for yourself and seeking to understand it and apply it? When was the last time you consciously called on the Holy Spirit to guide your thoughts, words, and actions in this broken world? And have you been engaged in worship at church, not just showing up, but in engaged? And have you been intentionally giving your talents and gifts to build others up and furthering the mission of Jesus Christ in this world? And have you been faithful in talking to God, praying for others in addition to yourself, including those, and this is the hard part, that you find much more difficult to pray for, right? 
are you happy with the way you're answering these questions? And do you think God is pleased? And more importantly, do you think he's honored by your answers? And I, I gotta be honest, some of these things I've struggled with, even, even this week. But even if you're confident in your answers, God still loves you too much to leave you where you're at, right? Even if you're here, he's gonna wanna raise you up. He desires an ever-deepening relationship with you. And despite your best personal efforts, there remains a gap, and we talked about this gap last week, between, between the life that he has created for you to live and the life you actually live. The, the space between um, our own ambitions and failings uh, and that compete with a good and pure life that we are called to enjoy. There's this, this gap, even despite our very best efforts. Now, I know we have several educators in this room, several who've been through a lot of education, and we know the purpose of a test is not to create undue anxiety for students, Rather, it is to gauge what the student knows, right? How much of what they've been taught have they been able to understand, retain, and apply? It reveals the success of the student to learn, and in some indirect ways, it reflects the ability of the instructor to teach it. But the purpose is primarily to prove the understanding of the student. That being said, God does test us from time to time, and he allows us to be tested, I want to share three scriptural perspectives from the Apostle Paul, James, and Peter. From Paul, found in Romans 5, 3 through 5. It says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Well, okay, now we're off to a bad start. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, there's a process to this these tests, these, these trials, these tribulations, these sufferings he, he describes, okay? Um, James 1, 2 through 3, you know, does it this, says it this way. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of, of all kinds. For you know that it is the testing of your faith that produces perseverance or steadfastness. And let this perseverance or steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, Right? He's trying to bring us to here, bring us over here in our faith. Second Peter 1, 3 through 9 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make, your, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, ouch, and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Does anybody ever get hung up on that self-control thing? Right, we do good on the spirits, the fruits of the spirit, right? Kindness, gentleness, self-control, right? And self-control, like, oh. It says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he is cleansed from his former sins. It's a process. These tests, these, these things that come in our life that test our faith, that test our perseverance, that, that test our bodies. These are explanations of the purpose and benefit of God's testing us. But, but testing of our faith today, 
or let me say it this way, the testing of your faith today will be the basis of your faith tomorrow. It's a process. It, it strengthens, it deepens it. And the first testament story of Job is an important one, and we're familiar with it. But listen as I read the first few verses to give us some insight into the life of this man, Job. It says, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Okay, all accounts a good man. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. And he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So by, by God's account and by worldly account, he was a good and successful, upright man. And, and listen to this. It says, his sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. I mean, he was all about doing it right. And we know that he was tested. We, we know from reading the rest of the story that he was tested harshly, not, not to reveal to God what the strength of Job's faith, because God knew, knew it, right? But to reveal to Satan and to Job's friends and to affirm to Job himself how truly strong his faith was. And he passed that test. You see, God does test even the most faithful of his people. And, and that's to, to let us know how much we know and where our faith is. You know, sometimes we come out of those, those faith tests, we're like, okay, I relied on God and he was right there. And sometimes we look back and goes, I should have got, given God more credit because he got me through it. You know, it'd be nice if he didn't have to test us, but that's the way we are. But we shouldn't have to test him. Listen to the story um, of Gideon. And I really like this one because I've been feeling a little like Gideon in, in, in recent months and in various aspects of my life. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump around. But the whole story is found in Judges 6. And it says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. We talked about this in Bible study, right? The, the Israelites were God's chosen people, and he rescued them from Egypt. And, and still what happened? They, they sinned. They, they broke their covenant promise. And, and so God let things happen, right? He, he tested them. He said, okay, I'm gonna give you over to the hands of the Midianites. You will be exiled from your land. You're gonna be their, their servants, their prisoners, their slaves. And it says, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain cliffs, caves, and strongholds. So now, not only are we in this promised land, we've been kicked out and we're living in holes. It says, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other Eastern peoples invaded their country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian was so impoverished Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And what would happen is every time the Israelites were doing these things to, to get their crops and this, these invading armies would come in and just you know, pill, pillage it and take it for themselves. So what was happening, they were, a lot of them were doing these things in secret. And we find the story of Gideon. And Gideon was, was taking care of things on the threshing floor, right? And, and this is where he was working to kind of keep it out of sight of, of the invading army so it was fine. But so Gideon was there working on the threshing. Um, he was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. 
Verse 12 says, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Okay, wow. If, if God came or sent an angel and said, mighty warrior, call that, I would be, I don't know if I believe it, but I believe it now. I never thought of myself. But listen to Gideon's response. Verse 13, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all those wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, do not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us in the hand of Midian. Well, we know the Lord did not abandon them, but it certainly felt like it. So, so there's this dialogue going back and forth between the angel and, and Gideon. And, and he's saying, I'm going to send you out. I'm going to make you the next, next rescuer of my people. And of course, Gideon's response, verse 15, pardon me, my Lord, how can I save Israel? My, my clan is the weakest and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. So Gideon says, okay, um, you're God and, and, and fine, but let me doubt you, let me test you, let me negotiate with you. Verse 17, if I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that is really you talking to me. Please not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And, and he did this, and he, and he offers this burnt offering. So now Gideon's, okay, I know who you are, I, you know, and he says, it's okay, do not be afraid. I, I come in peace. I come to, to equip you for this mission. But Gideon does this thing where he, he, he wants to make sure that he's got it right, mostly because he really doesn't want to do it. Now, does this sound like you? Does it sound like me? Like, uh, it sounds like a good idea. I feel called. I feel compelled. It sounds like a godly thing to do. I feel like you're telling me, but, but just to make sure, right? Just to make sure. And, and I love this. And we don't, I can't think of a modern example of what this would be, but we hear about Gideon's fleece, right? So he takes this fleece and he says, if this is really what you want me to do, he said, I'm going to put it on the ground. And he does this twice. And one time he says, I want the fleece to be sopping wet, but the ground to be dry. Okay? And he comes in and he's like, okay, exactly right. Maybe, maybe that's just coincidence, right? Maybe that's not God. So he's, he does the opposite now, right? I want the ground to be sopping wet, but the fleece to be dry. And of course that's what happens. And, and this is a, a question that was challenged to me recently by, by one of my counterparts in, in my study. And, and the question was asked to me, why do you think... Why do you think God did that? Why didn't God just say, just shut up, idiot, and do as I say? Why do you think God had to do that? And, and I, I don't know that I came to a firm answer, but in, in my own fleeces that I've been laying out there, I think it's because I needed to realize that whatever I, you know, I really just needed to have faith. Stop testing because God's going to meet whatever test if he wants me to do it. So why waste time, right? So... So it's really interesting that here's Gideon. God has clearly come to him with the angel and he says, I am equipping you. You are mighty and all this. Um, and I've done this stuff, but he still negotiates. I'm just not sure. Do you guys, do you guys ever do that? Yeah, just make it so obvious. We were talking about that in Bible study this morning. You know, um, is it a time where I'm supposed to wait patiently and trust God to do for me? Or am I supposed to be going and doing? You know, God make that clear. And we get in our own way. By, of, of, by sitting there and hemming and hawing and, and asking for signs and, and windows. And God will do it. He'll do it. I mean, you know, he told Jonah where to go and Jonah said, oh, I've got someplace I'd rather be. Well, what happened? Jonah got 
he placed exactly where God wanted him to be placed. So, so let's avoid that uncomfortable nature and just be obedient, I guess is the short answer. But, but I want to talk about this notion of, of negotiations. See, we didn't invent the concept of negotiating with God. We're, we're going to take the remainder of the message time to look at some examples of the Bible and see what they reveal about the nature of God, mostly his patience with us. But in the Old Testament, the First Testament, Numbers 21, 1 through 3, says, When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Therim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord, If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their city. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns, so the place was named Hormah. It appears here that Israel is trying to make a deal with the Lord. If you do this for us, we will do this for you. So I say, is it it right to make deals with God? Lord, if you get me out of this mess, I promise I'll start going to church every Sunday. God, if you heal my child, I will get serious with you. How many times have we tried to negotiate with God? Lord, if you'll just give me this promotion at work, I'll be able to give more money at church. Lord, if you'll just heal me, I'll serve you all the years you give me. Lord, if you'll put my marriage back together again, I'll start going to church more regularly, right? We, we tend to negotiate this. But negotiations are all about leverage, right? Can you imagine being bold enough to bargain with God? Flip this slide here. I, I, I kind of change this, right? We, we're sitting there yanking on the rope and, and God's on the other side. Flip it again. It, you know, we're, we're this little guy with this little piece. And we're like, God, I've, I've got a better idea. You know, I'm going to, here's what I'm going to do with my little piece of knowledge. Go again. And we talked about this last week about this gap, right? Here we are and, and God's on the other side and, and we're separated from him. And, and we know that we need to, to bridge that gap, but we cannot on our own or we would have done it by now, close that up. So we've got Jesus Christ to bridge that gap, all right? Yeah, we still keep trying to do it on our own, don't we? If I just pray harder, if I'm just a better person, if I just let this addiction go, if I, you know, try harder Christianity doesn't work because try harder Christianity leads to discouragement, right? Don't keep trying with the wrong tool. Try with the right tool and let Jesus do the work. But again, so what's more like, instead of pulling and tugging with God, we, we, we hang on to him. He lowers the rope to us or we... Lower it down to other people. This is discipleship. Right? So that, that's what we're supposed to look like, not this tug of war with God. In order to truly negotiate or bargain, you have to have something that the other person wants. I have cash, you have merchandise. Okay? We're going to haggle. I'm going to determine how much um, I'm willing to pay for that or how much you're willing to that. And that, and that is how you negotiate or bargain. Can you imagine bargaining with God of the universe? But that's our first instance when we do this stuff. Like, what do I possibly have that he wants? What do I possibly have that I can give him? Well, let me tell you, it's our faith. It's our love. It's our loyalty. It's our obedience, right? But he should already have this. It shouldn't be a negotiation. But again, we aren't the first to do this. Look at Abraham, right? Three men, three angels came to visit Abraham and tell him, about the birth of his baby. And he's like, that, can't, that doesn't make sense, right? But what a shock. And before these men left, they told Abraham that they were going to go visit Sodom and Gomorrah to see if the reports of the wickedness were true. If so, they would have to destroy those cities. And Abraham stood there before the Lord and he pled, 
for the salvation of the cities on behalf of his nephew, Lot, who lived there. Genesis 18, 16-33 captures the story. And, and we saw how God worked through this intercession. And again, it's, it's, it's Abraham negotiating. He says, the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people, fine, I'll, I'll save them. 50 righteous people. And Abraham said, nah, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, I, you know, what if there's only five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? And God says, if I find 45 there, I will not destroy it. And he goes, well, what if only 40 are found, right? He's, he, I, think, I think Abraham's realizing what a, what a horrible place this is. Um, and he's saying, eh, yeah, probably in all these people, we're not even going to find 40. And he, and he negotiates them down to 10, right? And in verse 32, we find him making his last appeal. And he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And as Abraham continued to negotiate the terms of Sodom and Gomorrah's salvation, God didn't back away. He fully engaged with Abraham. And then there were not even 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah that God would spare. And Lot and his family escaped, but just barely. And how amazing it is that God would put himself in the position of working with his people to see his purposes come about. What's, what's really interesting is, is God knew how many there were or weren't. And God certainly has the authority to say, Listen, listen, this is, this is bad. I'm going to... And, and Abraham, and, and like many others, would say, but you made this promise. You made this promise to not destroy, to love. So what if you, have, what if you just find a little bit of good? And God's like, okay. Yeah, there's. And at first you may think Abraham was a, a bit brash to, do, to, to argue like that. But as you just examine the story, you discover that God was actually encouraging Abraham in this venture of prayer to talk to me. We've got a dialogue going. You know, by the way, I'm going to win because I'm God. But look, we're talking. That's good. God took the initiative by revealing his purpose to Abraham. He said, he said, here's what I'm going to do. And he moved Abraham to prayer. Based on what we know of God's character, you know, this is what it is. And, and based on this, the lesson is the knowledge of God's purpose and God's person should move us to pray for a world under judgment. This is the purpose of this. Another example is Moses. And and. I, I love this again. Moses is, is another one that he didn't want to go. You know, I'm slow in speech. I'm slow in tongue. And God, what does God say? Who do you think gave you that ability to speak or not speak? He said, okay, but I'm going to send you. And, and, and Moses kept saying, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Right? They sound both pitiful, but aren't they relatable? Right? Please send someone else. I'm not, I'm not your man. I'm not your, I'm not your woman. I'm not, I'm not the person you want to send. Here's where I'm flawed. And God says, I know that. And that's the power in what I do through you is because I know your flaws and I will use them. And I have purposely and, and per- perfectly equipped you for what I'm about to ask you to do, whatever that may be. And Moses finally agrees to do what God asked, but then Pharaoh refuses to let him go and God backs him up with the plagues. So it, it wasn't up to Moses to change God's heart, but God, God took care of that. But after reconciling himself to this uh, assignment, and this took a while for Moses to say, okay, I'll go, Moses was faithful in answering God's call to speak up the Hebrews. No matter how long it took, Moses' strategy was to, to do as God asked and to leave the final result to God. And that's all he's asking us to do. If he's asking you to do something, he's got a plan. And you may not be the end-all, be-all part of that plan. But even in this, 
You know, Moses put himself out there. He talked to Pharaoh. He led them out of there. And he's up on Mount Sinai and he's getting the Ten Commandments. This is in Exodus 32, starting at 9. He's up there and God's like, well, don't look now. I'm paraphrasing. Don't look now. But all these people that we just rescued, they're down there melting their gold and making a calf because they're tired of waiting on you to come down. Right? What a slap in the face is God. And what does Moses do? He goes, don't let your anger burn against them. I know they're, I know they're blowing it. He goes, but, but remember the promises you made. And he gave examples of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Remember the promises you made. I don't think God needed to be reminded of that. I think Moses needed to be reminded of that. And Moses went down, and Moses was angry enough for, for, for both of them. But he, he saved them from that. He saved them from that. Um, and and I, one other thing I wanted to, to kind of end with is... is there are some things we can discern from some of these examples. You know, all the people that negotiated with God felt absolutely desperate. And we certainly feel that way at times. They felt like they had nowhere to turn but to the Lord. And sometimes that's where God brings us to that point. Say, okay, rely on me. I'll be that rope down to you. Abraham couldn't stop the judgment of God, the God upon, say, um, Sodom. But his relatives lived there, so he, he negotiated, he argued. And Jacob, when we talk about, you know, when we study Jacob, he's talking about a long journey through dangerous and desolate areas, um, and he knew he needed God's protection and provision. And I'm going to share with you the story in a second of Jephthah. And, and what's really interesting with this is, is I want you to be prepared to, number one, follow through, and two, be ready if God calls your bluff. Now, um, Jephthah is may not be a story that you're familiar with, but here's what happened. He asked for God to help him um, in this battle, right? And he said, "If you will just get me through and and find success, I promise that the first thing out of my door I will sacrifice to you." And he's probably thinking goat, right? Cow, chicken, something like that. And this is found in Judges 11, 30, 32, by the way. Judges 11. He says, um, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And I will sacrifice as a burnt offering. Okay. Verse 32. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands. Can you imagine how he felt when his daughter came out to greet him? Imagine. This whatever turned out to be his daughter, who was his only child. When he saw his daughter, he tore his clothes. He cried, oh no, not my daughter. You have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. And after a two-month period, he did sacrifice his daughter. And And... That is obedience. And then the lesson is that you shouldn't make commitments or vows to God, but be mindful of what you're committing to because he will hold you to it. Lord, I, if you do this, I promise to give my life to you. Do it. Be prepared to do that. You know, we, I've, I've shared this before. There's a lot of if-then statements in the Bible. If you do this, then I'll do that. And the if is always on our side because the choice is ours. Right? If my people will do this, then I will. And when God says, then I will, it's a promise. It's a covenant promise. He will stand behind it. But the decision is always on our side. Listen to this. Second Chronicles 7, Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face 
and turn from my wicked ways, their wicked, wicked ways, then, here's the promise, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. If we do this, when we do this, he promises to do that. Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. Right? If we do this, if we make that choice, then he promises he will do likewise. In Romans 8, 31. If God is for us now, there's no doubt, who can be against us? This is a part of an acceptance and a response. God says, will you accept this? If I send my son to die for you, will you accept the gift? If I, if I take him into heaven and to intercede any part, will, you, will he know your name? Will you accept that gift, right? If I send the Holy Spirit as done on Pentecost to equip you internally for what you need to do, will you accept it? Will you invoke it? And here in a moment, we're going to take communion. If I offer it to you, will you accept it? This is Jesus' words, not my words, because that's exactly why I came, right? On the night he was betrayed, he stood in that upper room, and, and he took bread. And, and he took that bread, and he, and he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Right? No longer an if, it's done. And likewise, he took the cup, and he said, this is... This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. We're still responsible for the same laws, same, same requirements, same obligations and, and commandments that God had given us. But now we have a hope, we have a savior, and we have a bridge for that gap. And he says, every time you gather, you eat this bread and you drink this wine, he says, do this in remembrance of me. This is what we commemorate, this is what we celebrate. Not just when we, when we take communion, but every day of our life because this is what gives us hope. If you have a problem, take it to the cross. If you have an affliction, take it to the cross. This is the one place they don't say leave it at the door. They say bring it. You have a broken heart, guess who can fix it, right? Guess who? If my people will just come, then I will heal. That's the promise. Let's make that our prayer. Heavenly Father, you have done so much for us. Lord, please accept our apology that we haggle, we negotiate, we, we, we test you. But Lord, you are so desperate for that relationship with us that you tolerate all of our games. And you say, at least you're talking to me. So Lord, we just thank you for your love, the gift of grace, the gift of mercy, and that we have this relationship with you. We thank you that there is no if on your side. It's a matter of when we do this, if we do our thing, you promise, covenant promise, you will respond. So Lord, if we take this communion, we are responding to you. There is not an if on this side. We are responding to you, Lord. We accept that invitation and we thank you for accepting us. In your son's name we pray, amen.